Well, the book of Romans today. Uh, we're going to be going to chapter 6 of the book of Romans. Uh, we left off in the middle of chapter 6, and I was going back and looking. Uh, our last sermon from the book of Romans was on March 15th, which seems like an entire lifetime ago, if you think back uh, to the days of early March before so many of the changes we're now in. That means it's been five months since we've been in the book of Romans, and I thought what we could do today is maybe ease our way back into it. We're just going to be looking at the second half of chapter 6. And uh, remembering that Romans can be a complex book. We find ourselves in the middle of the book going to chapter 6. And so, so much of what Paul's been doing is already already underway. We're sort of jumping back into the middle of those arguments. And uh, I thought what we could do is maybe as we ease our way in, give a little bit of a refresher. Maybe you need it. Uh, maybe I need it for where we were in Romans. So maybe really basic. Paul wrote the book of Romans to the Romans. I don't know if you remember that portion of our introduction to Romans. But we're in the middle of a section in which Paul was talking about the topic of sin, and particularly the relationship between sin, the law, and the impact of the gospel. How has the gospel changed what it is to be under the law? How has the gospel changed how we're to think about sin and obedience? Um, There's several theories about the context around which Paul was writing this letter to the church at Rome. It could be that Paul was writing to the Romans because he had heard about some Jewish opposition, whether it was Jewish Christian or Jews, who were opposing this idea of the gospel and how it had allowed and welcomed Gentiles into the faith. Maybe some some, uh, teaching like he had faced in other places like Galatia. There's definitely some of that theme that makes it into Romans. I tend to think that probably the cultural uh, experience happening in the Church of Rome is that, as we had talked about uh, several months ago in the introduction, at one point uh, the Roman authorities had expelled the Jews from Rome, and by the time Paul is writing, most of those Jews had been under a new emperor welcomed back into Rome. So what you have is a sort of complex cultural situation where, having left, the Gentiles would have stepped up into the leadership of the church, and now many of these Jews were returning to their home, to their home churches, to find a large period of time where the Gentiles had been in charge. Maybe some things had changed, maybe some things had sort of evolved, maybe the context in which they were worshiping looked slightly different than it had before. And it's not surprising that two parties within a church having different opinions might cause some controversy within the church. And so it may be that Paul is writing to try to sort out some tensions that had built between the returning Jews and those Gentiles who had stayed in power within the church during that exile time. Uh, Remember, Paul wanted to go to Rome. It was his full anticipation that he would make it to Rome as a missionary, spend some time with these believers who he had not yet met, and then use Rome as a kind of base point to jump off and go further west into places like Spain. Uh, If you know Paul's story, you know that that's ultimately not the terms under which he comes to Rome. He'll come as a prisoner and be executed there and wouldn't fulfill that final missionary work. So uh, I don't take the book of Rome to be Paul's fullest expression of the gospel, as we sometimes think. I pointed this out in our introduction, too. There's things Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on that you might expect, things like the resurrection, which are huge arguments in other books like the letters to the Corinthians. Instead, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is trying to explain this foundational gospel and how it relates to the coming together of Jew and Gentiles in a place like Rome. That comes up, and the reason I sort of do this little refresh for us, is it comes up specifically in this passage we're looking at today in chapter 6. The way Paul has often organized his thoughts throughout the letter of Romans 
is by posing these kind of questions to himself. He's having almost a kind of imaginary debate in which he'll raise an opposition question and then take time to answer it and then raise another one of these objections and takes time to answer it. And you're going to see that happen specifically here in chapter 6. So if you've got your Bibles, chapter 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 15, Romans 6.15, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Romans 6.15. Here's one of these theoretical questions Paul's raising. What then... Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Then Paul answers the question, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. A famous line for many, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to look at a few things in the passage this morning. First, why is slavery such a prominent analogy for Paul and throughout the Bible, so often used to describe sin? But then secondly, here, why does Paul use slavery to characterize our obedience to God in the freedom we've received through the gospel? Why this image of slavery, and then why specifically does Paul make a strange term? We understand this idea, you were slave to sin, but now you're free to God. But Paul says, you were once slave to sin, but now you are slave to righteousness. Why does he stick with the theme? And finally, what is different about these two enslavements, our slavery to sin, our enslavement to righteousness? Um, Paul starts with one of these rhetorical questions. Uh, So the imaginary debater says something like, well, Paul, if we're no longer under the law, if the gospel has freed us from the obligations of the law, if the rules have ended because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, well, why should we be concerned about sin? Doesn't being free mean that I can now go and do whatever I like because Christ has freed me from the obligations? It's a kind of clever question, But one of the things it does is it imagines that the person asking the question can be in charge of such decisions. We could decide whether we're going to sin or not. Why don't we just go on sinning now? This person could decide what they're going to do and what the implications are of grace for the way they'll live and the decisions they'll make. It imagines that salvation under Christ is only a kind of wiping of the slate clean. And by the question itself, shouldn't we go on sinning? The person imagines that they have actually a say in whether they're going to sin or not to sin. Paul suggests something quite different. You don't have nearly as much control to answer this question as you imagine you do. 
as if you could sort of take an objective look at yourself and say, well, now this is my decision about how to live and somehow I'll do that from this day forward and be consistent in it. Paul realizes that the impact of sin, what it means to be living in this sinful, broken condition, isn't that clean cut. We don't have as much control over that decision as we imagine. Not over sin, not over grace. Instead, Paul says, don't you realize you're a slave? You're enslaved. It's not as easy to decide what you're going to do and the decision you'll make before or after grace as you imagine. And salvation is not just about removing everything and handing you a kind of blank freedom by which you can go and choose what you'll do with it. To make this point, Paul draws them back to the image of slavery, the imagery of sin enslaving us, which is actually a major theme of the Bible. It comes up way more than you probably realize, and it's not just Paul who's drawing on this analogy. So, for instance, Peter writes this in 2 Peter 2. For speaking loud boasts of folly, he's talking about those who will tempt people, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Peter positions this idea of enslavement, a kind of temptation that overpowers us, And the ability to be overpowered demonstrates we're not as in control of our decisions as we think. Really, we're held captive by those things. So for Peter, it's this overcoming. For Paul in chapter 6, it's us presenting ourselves to those things which enslave us. But Jesus himself does something similar. In John, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Jesus universalizes it. Anybody who is under the sin condition, if you have ever committed a sin in your life, then you have to deal with the reality you are a slave to sin. You are not nearly as in control of the decisions you make as you might imagine that you actually are. Maybe that makes sense to you if you think about sin, this kind of enslavement as a form of addiction or some kind of um, compulsive, destructive behavior that you're just unable to stop yourself from doing. But most of us, most days, don't feel like we're in the middle of that. Most of us don't say, man, my problem is I'm just a slave. I'm enslaved by this thing. We think that sounds a little melodramatic by Paul, right? You're enslaved to sin or enslaved to righteousness. Well, most days I get up and fix a cup of coffee and make breakfast and decide what I'm going to do with my day and pick a show on Netflix. And I don't say to myself, look at this slavery that beats me down. We get stuff wrong, we make poor choices, we figure out what we messed up and try to do better the next time, but enslaved, I'm not sure most of us would use that word to describe our lives. When Paul was talking about how the gospel had fulfilled the law, I doubt many of the people listening were saying to themselves, oh, I see how this impacts my enslavement to sin. When Paul talks about the freedom that we have in Christ, I doubt many of them were saying, oh, let me uh, process this through this image of a slave that I consider myself to be. Most of us don't use this analogy as frequently as it comes up in the Bible to think about our own lives, the control we have over our lives, the position that we're actually in. But one of the reasons the Bible and the biblical writers so often turn to this image of slavery is because it was at the center of Israel's history and their identity as God's people. 
Israel, as you all know, spent hundreds of years living as slaves, enslaved by the Egyptians. They had faced generations of brutal physical labor, building not their own cities, but the cities of the Egyptians, the monuments of the pharaohs. When they were finally freed under the leadership of Moses by God's miraculous hand, they left celebrating. You'll remember the scene. All of their Egyptian masters, hoping to get rid of them so the plagues would stop, had given them gold and silver and riches, and they marched out of the Egyptian land, singing and worshiping and celebrating their freedom. No one was second-guessing, do I really want to be free? Do I want to stay? Do I want to go? It was a universal, grab what you can and let's get out of here. They were no longer slaves, a free people moving into the wilderness. But in addition to being slaves, Israel also had a long history of struggling to understand what it meant to be free. It's one of the nearly constant events throughout those years of their wandering through the wilderness and on into their days in the promised land. Israel constantly complained and shockingly wished to go back to Egypt. Let me give you some examples of it. Just days after they had probably escaped Egypt, they came up against the Red Sea and began to hear Pharaoh's chariots rumbling in the distance. We read in that story, were there no graves in Egypt that, for us to die in, that you bring us here into the wilderness? What is this that you have done to us to take us out of Egypt? <laughs> they turn, having just been delivered and celebrating and worshiping, and they turn to Moses and say, what have you done? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? It's kind of shocking just days after being freed, but it continues. In the wilderness as they became hungry, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Interesting. What do they remember about Egypt? Pots full of meat, plates full of bread. How much better was it than the wilderness? Or when they became thirsty. Why is this that you have brought us up from Egypt to kill me and my children and my livestock with thirst? It gets so bad at one point during the wilderness that a rebellion breaks out. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It really is amazing. Over and over, I gave you a small selection. Go read through the story yourself. Over and over, the Israelites find themselves in the midst of freedom, saying to themselves, if only we could go back to Egypt. (laughs) There's one verse where they start to remember all of the fruit and vegetables that they had, the pots full of meat, the bread. Why couldn't we be back there? Maybe it wasn't that bad in Egypt. But we remember what God had said to Moses at the burning bush. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I am aware of their suffering. Now, how can those two things be? A people who for generations cried out to God because of their suffering, the misery, the oppression. And just days after having been freed, they look back on those generations of suffering and say, it wasn't that bad pots of meat and plates full of bread and a place to sleep and all those vegetables and let's go back. Let's overthrow Moses and let's go back. 
Those two things do not sound alike. Their cry for suffering, and now this memory that looks back so fondly on what for generations they had prayed to escape. It's easy to shake your head at that and wonder, how can these people be so dumb? How can they honestly think that they had it better when they were enslaved? Who are these people and why are they so crazy? But if you're honest, who here has not had their own sort of triumphant salvation experience when they tasted of this freedom, this life-changing, reorienting experience, through desperate prayers, struggles against our own sins, feeling the limitation of our own enslavement to sin, and then that sense, God by his spirit, rescuing us, only to find that a few months pass, maybe a few days, maybe a few hours, and we find ourselves beginning to justify things that we were just begging God to never have to deal with again. We usually don't wish to go back to being non-Christians, though some do, but still we begin to look on that life before and start recognizing some things that weren't so bad, pretty good. Some of it we just have a hard time letting go of. We're suspicious of letting go, suspicious that this freedom might not actually be everything we had hoped it was. It all seems common sense to us, the way the world works. Why did Moses bring us here? This wasn't what I had signed up for. This isn't what I expected. I thought things were going to get better. We really did have it better off before. Egypt starts looking pretty good. We aren't honest about what it was to be enslaved before, how much sin really had controlled us, and we begin to second-guess what we have. This is the image Paul uses. Don't you remember what it is to be enslaved? And he's reminding them because of this tendency we have to forget, to forget what enslavement to sin actually was, what it looked like, and this human tendency to drift willingly back into it. But Paul doesn't end there. He shifts now and says, but you're not longer slaves to sin, but you're still slaves, but slaves to righteousness. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The wilderness for Israel was more than just a physical wandering. It was more than just a test. Can you keep up your faith when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when you're pursued? They had understood their physical freedom, being freed physically from the work of Egypt, but they struggled to understand what it meant to now live as a slave to righteousness. They weren't freed. The Bible does not mean by the word freedom that they could now simply do whatever they want. Congratulations, you've been freed. Have at it. Here's the wilderness. Go do as you would like. That was never what his freedom from Egypt was about. They weren't freed so that they could do whatever they individually wanted, although that would become the problem. Remember the great line from the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. But from the very beginning, this idea of freedom had been connected with the idea of being God's people. If you go back to the Exodus story and remember what Moses was saying to Pharaoh, it was not just let my people go. It was let my people go so that they can worship their God in the wilderness. The freedom from Egypt was always about a reforming into a people of God and the freedom to worship and serve that God. Um, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Romans that I've been using and was using before as we worked through it writes this, This challenge is the sharp edge of the contrast. In this passage, between the two types of slavery, 
Paul is eager to ward off any suggestion that because as Christians we are free from the slavery of sin, this gives us the freedom to do anything that comes into our heads. This is once more a charge he must have met quite often in his ministry, not least from Jews and Jewish Christians who, on hearing that he regarded Christians as free from the law, worried that quite naturally that they would cast off all moral restraint. It's amusing to think Paul think of Paul facing this charge when in our own day he is often seen as a stern moralist. Paul knows that the freedom which the Christian enjoys is not like that kind of thing. Just as the freedom you enjoy when you pass your driving test and have the freedom of the road does not mean that you are free to drive as fast as you like through towns and villages or to drive on the wrong side of the road or to drive on railway tracks and cross-plowed fields. I thought it was a helpful image that Wright draws. To be free does not mean that we now possess limitless potential to do as we please. It means we're freed into something, freed to be a participant of something that is already happening. Let my people go that they may worship their God in the wilderness. The freedom is an opportunity to be formed into God's people. We are now slaves to righteousness. Salvation hasn't been a kind of blank slate But instead, it's been a move towards living as God intended and created us to live. If you remember the way we had defined righteousness, this is the hard part of having a five-month break. A big part of what we did in the early part of Romans was talk about his definition, what it means, the righteousness of God. Paul is describing a kind of right standing that comes from God having fulfilled his covenant to his people. That God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his promise, his covenant. And our righteousness is a being pulled into that covenant, being a participant in his people and all of the promises that come with it. We are under the promise of God, fulfilled by God. We are now slaves to a new law. That promise, that covenant, that identity as God's people. We are slaves to his faithfulness no longer our own faithfulness. That means that when God delivers you from sin, he does it so that you might give your life into its proper purposes and its proper place and its proper identity. Not a blank slate by which you now get to go live your best life on your terms because you've been freed from any guilt. It means that you now have a new name written over you. You belong to someone else. You are a part of something else. You are in on something that is happening. Before, you were in on Egyptian power and Egyptian optics, Egyptian identity, building their monuments, building their cities, glorifying their renown. But now all of that work shifts to a new name, a new people. You live not just for yourself, but for the renown the glory, the reputation of God, a member of his family, a slave to that covenant, working for this ideal, perfect, created identity, God's people. You are in on a new world, a different kind of world, with a different trajectory and a new hope. But you're brought into a world that exists, a world that was created with its own purpose, not your own to daydream and come up with what you'll do next, but something, a story that is already underway, a people that has existed before you. Freed by God from sin, you are welcomed now into this new people to bear and to take up the responsibilities and the work that is a part of that name, 
that covenant, that promise. The final thing that Paul does is say that there is a significant shift of motive between these two enslavements. They are not in the end the same. Before I was enslaved by Pharaoh to work, and now I'm enslaved by God to do his work. That's not what Paul is saying. There's a fundamental shift in motives by which previously you worked for sin, Pharaoh, and by now which you serve God, righteousness. That old slavery was characterized by fear, a fear of punishment embodied in the power of the Egyptian slave master, master, but in sin itself, the guilt and shame of knowing it. It is a fear of missing out, a fear of not being good enough, a fear of not having enough for it to pay off in the end, a fear of losing what you've accumulated, a fear of having to constantly carve out and fight and scrape for your own way, your own future. But for Paul, that fear is fundamentally changed by the slavery to righteousness, this new people. He puts it this way in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. What Paul's describing is a new kind of obedience. Not an obedience under the oppression of a law, the rules and regulations forcing on you righteousness or else consequences. But here, a heart that has been changed and obeys. That is, you take up this new place, this new people, this new master, not out of desperation, not out of fear of the consequences, but out of a heart that is overflowing with gratitude and thanks, a heart transformed by the way in which you have been freed, a heart that has been changed by the cost you have witnessed God was willing to pay for your freedom. The German theologian Meister Eckhart put it this way, if the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. I think it's true. The prayer, the identity mark, the form of obedience of all believers is an act of gratitude. Thank you. Obedience from the heart. That's what allows Paul to say those final famous words of this chapter. For the wages of sin is death. You'll work yourself to death. You'll be desperate to the end and lose it all. Pursuing yourself, the slavement to sin leads in death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The old slavery of sin worked on a system of wages. You earn it, you look out for yourself, you scheme to make it happen, to get it. The old slavery under the law was similar. Wages, obey or there are consequences. Obey because I told you to. In the end, you'll get what you deserve, so do what you better. But this new slave system works not under the system of wages, but as a gift, under a new economy of grace. It begins not with a task or a command. You better do it. I freed you from Egypt. Now you better be obedient to me, your God. Instead, it begins by the command, receive. Be free. Take. Eat. Receive into yourself. You are welcomed, brought into this kingdom, this covenant, by his sacrifice, not your own. The fundamental move of this new master is not one of demanding, but one of giving, sacrificing, and pouring out. And to receive that, 
to recognize just what you have received, this first work being not your achievement, but his sacrifice, it creates a reorienting of your heart that allows Paul to say, we serve this new master, not out of fear, not on the basis of wages, but on the basis of grace and out of a heart, gratitude that leads towards obedience. But maybe the biggest part of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is that he has to remind us of this, that you can know all of this, receive all of this, and like Israel, gradually over time, slip back into the old sin. The whole time you imagine yourself God's people, Moses, your prophet, headed towards the promised land, but slowly you begin to complain and get frustrated, your eyes drift, your memory, your imagination drawn back to how it was in Egypt, and you begin to forget what you have received and the ways it has moved your heart to righteousness. We find ourselves drug back into the old slavery, like Israel reverting back wages and work and desperation and self-interest and self-righteousness. We don't believe we're free anymore. We beg to go back to when we thought we had a little more control and we understood the scheme. I work, you deliver the payment. Lewis famously put it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And so too, freed from this world in which our work delivers a wage, we bear the weight, we receive all of eternity, grace and mercy, a new name, a new identity, a new hope, and yet days later we find ourselves messing around with the old ways of living believing that we really need to look out for ourselves, carve something out for ourselves, make things happen for ourselves. And so Paul does in chapter 6 what the gospel itself does, what I'm called on Sunday mornings when we get together to do. He reminds the Romans of what they have received, to remember that you are no longer a slave to that way of living. You no longer live under a system of wages in which your future is on your shoulders. When you are tired, when you are hungry, when you are thirsty, when you're in danger, when you're afraid or overcome by anxiety about the future, like Israel, you begin to remember the old way and say, if I could just make it happen, if I just had a little more control. If only I had my way, if I was in charge, if things went the way I thought they should go. But Paul reminds you, that's not your master. That's not the way the economy, the world works that you are now a part of. You have been freed from that desperation. You have received an act, a gift, a grace, which allows you to put your hope and trust and perspective on a new master, a master who does not crack a whip and wait for you to act, but a master who pours out his life and bears that whip himself across his back to earn for you not a life of enslavement, but a life of receiving and out of gratitude, serving back. What chapter 6 reminds us to do is to hold on to it, to remind yourself of it, 
Remember, you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. Remember what you've received. Remember who you are. Remember how this story, the trajectory of this people plays out. God is yours by his faithfulness. Your future is his by his faithfulness. Your hope, your steadfastness, your perseverance, your joy is his by his faithfulness. And the way into it is a heart that is changed by gratitude. Maybe that's something we need at this moment more than many times before. In days past, maybe that gratitude came a little more easily than it seems to be coming right now. I don't think most people would characterize the moment we're in as a moment of gratitude. (laughs) These are the days when everyone's feeling so thankful. But this is what Paul teaches the Romans to do. A heart changed. The risk of losing it, drug back into the old ways, like Israel constantly did to Egypt, but for those who are willing, out of gratitude, to fix their eyes on it. A new way of living, a new way of receiving, a steadfastness that that old system of wages could never deliver. So we do it this morning, like Paul does. We remind ourselves who you are, what you have, how the world actually works around you, and we respond with gratitude. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, if you will receive it, of God is eternal life and all of the hope that comes with it. Let's pray this morning, and then we'll worship together an act of gratitude. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning recognizing how easily we too drift from what we've received. God, you give us this story of the Israelites not because Not because they get it wrong, but because like them, we get it wrong. We see their story, and God, I see so much of my own life, my own heart, as that song goes, how prone it is to wander from you. God, like them, we have tasted and seen of this salvation, this freedom that we have in you. And yet, God, I know how easy it is for a news headline or an unexpected bill or some relationship complexity bring it all crumbling down around me and revert back to my own desperate feelings for control, to make things happen for myself, to wish not that my life was in your hands, but that I had a little more of my life in my own hands to control myself. We repent of it this morning. We turn, we remind ourselves like you do here in this passage that we are no longer slaves to that system to its expectations, to its demands, to its crushing burden on our shoulders. But we have been freed from sin, freed from its demands, freed from our inadequacy to fulfill the law ourselves, and instead welcomed into your people because of your righteousness, your faithfulness, your ability to do what we could not do. So this morning, God, as the Spirit reminds us of who we are, of what we have in you, we respond by saying thank you. You are worthy to be praised. It's to you we offer our lives and our hope and our future. Regardless of what happens in this world around us, in this day we're in, our hope and our confidence and our peace is not in this world. It's not in what's to come. It's not in promises that we hear pitched to us on news headlines. The 
hope that we have is in you because we are your people. No matter what we face, death itself, nothing can shake shake the hope that we have in you. So we thank you this morning. We worship you this morning. By your spirit, remind us, move our hearts again to obedience out of gratitude. We worship you. It's in your name we pray.